Hello and welcome to another edition of Hidden in Plain Sight. I'm your host, Eric Ryder. Thanks so much for checking out this episode. It's a good one. We've got Anthony Reynolds from the band Jack, the band Jacques, and his solo records under the name Anthony Reynolds on the show today. And on this special edition, we talk specifically about the band Jack. Now, if you don't know Jack, time to check him out. Of course, I've made a playlist, a YouTube playlist that goes along with this episode, and you can find the link in the description. So check that out. Jack were a band formed in Cardiff, Wales in 1992. Their orchestral pop was influenced by artists such as Scott Walker, David Bowie, and Roxy Music. And they drew comparisons to groups like Tindersticks, Nick Cave and the Bad Seed, Suede, and the Divine Comedy. The band attracted a cult following in the United Kingdom and Europe, particularly France, but they failed to match the commercial success of their Britpop contemporaries. They split in 2002. Now, that's straight from the Wikipedia headline on the band Jack, but uh, does a pretty good job of describing them. Although we might take a little bit of issue with the idea that they were Britpop in any way. They certainly did their own thing, although they were touring with bands like Suede and the Blue Tones. And you'll hear about that in this great interview with Anthony Reynolds. This edition of the show, we're specifically talking about the band Jack. We dip a little bit into his side project, Jacques, and we wrap up just before we get to Anthony's solo career. So in a future edition of the show, we'll be talking about Anthony Reynolds' solo career, which is also worth checking out. But uh, if you don't know Anthony and you don't know Jack, I would definitely start with Jack, and I would start with their debut album, Pioneer Soundtracks, which we talk about in depth in this discussion. So I think you're going to enjoy this. Word of warning, there's some frank sexual talk, there's some frank drug talk so you know maybe not for kids this episode but uh i just want to give you that heads up in case you you listen with the whole family i i don't know why you would but uh, you never know with podcasts who they're going to reach so give you that heads up uh, that uh, there's a couple explicit moments in here so anyway Make sure you listen to the rest of this episode. I think you're going to enjoy it. Anthony's a very funny guy and a lot of fun to have a discussion with. I thank him very much for taking some time out of his busy evenings in this COVID world that we're living in and uh, making time to have this discussion with us. So enjoy the interview and I'll be back. All right, so Anthony, uh, let, let's talk about uh, your beginnings in music. You, of course, you hail from Cardiff, um, capital of Wales, and uh, did you start doing music there, or did you start when you moved to London? No, I was uh, dancing in the womb. Um, <laughs> some say... Uh, you know, is that dancing too soon? No, I, I was doing music uh, immediately, yeah, as soon as I could. And um, the fact that I lived in a country that happened to be where my parents bowled didn't ever hold much uh, 
meaning for me really so didn't matter where I was you know I was I was making music as, as soon as I could beat things okay so let's talk about your first musical project that you you know involved other people in aside from like pots and pans uh, um, I, were you a teenager uh, did you uh, meet people in school or what was what was your first musical project was I a teenager? Um, yeah, I was. A, I was a teenager between the ages of thirteen and nineteen, I think. Um, well, it was interesting because um, I went to an all boys Catholic school, which which was taught by brothers, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was pretty square. So um, my first proper group that we did gigs with was uh, through a childhood best friend called Leonard. Um, it was in another school, a mixed school, and um, yeah, I, I started off as a as a singer, singing through a karaoke machine at like fifteen, at um, like a prom or something, I guess you would call it. And then uh, I really got into drumming, and I was a drummer for a couple of years, playing clubs with this group. Um, I was playing clubs. I was too young to actually. Uh, in you know i couldn't drink i was like 16 17 uh-huh. and, um, and then i teenager. started yes <laughs> uh, and then um i i gave up drumming because um well none of us uh, drove and i had to get a taxi for the drum kit and i'd be lugging it up the, the stairs and at the end of every gig no one would want to help you put your drum kit away yeah and uh, I remember I noticed, I saw the microphone that the singer, my friend, was using. And I thought, fuck, there's always a microphone at these things. You know, he doesn't. He just turns up with the, the change in his pockets. <laughs> and um, I thought, I'm going to do that because I, I'm sick of, you know, car- being in full makeup. Right. You know, stinking of uh, hairspray, carrying like uh, a tom-tom and a hi-hat. Up like a back flight of stairs. Without so, a road um, at, at, at that point, for oh, sure. Oh, yeah, no. Th- th- there was n- no interest, no groupies, no roadies. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, but we were always recording, uh, you know, paying, pooling our money and going into a, a cheap studio to record demos and stuff like that. And did you have a name at that point? Yeah, oh, you know what it's like then, Um you have a different name every week. So sure. when I was the, when I was, I think the first group was Alien Circus. Alien Circus. And that was my friend's um, idea because he said, well, when they review us in the NME, it'll say the circus comes to town. <laughs> so we were like, Good yeah. reason to choose a name. Um, then True Love, I was drummer in True Love. Then I split up from them. I was in a group called Boy. Then Misery. A group, I was in, when I was about nineteen, I was in a group called Misery, um, which actually did get reviewed in the Melody Maker by Jonathan Seltzer, and the, when we played London. And I bet after, the headlines for I that split were that clever. Group and I teamed up. Uh, there was no headline. It was just a live review. Oh, okay. But he did say I was great and the band were crap. Oh, band okay. Were crap. Um, <laughs> it didn't say did, what a miserable experience or anything a, like that, or the aptly named misery. No. 
Oh, um, someone from Melody Maker did say uh, that your, the name of your band is very risable, and I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> um, that group split in about 1991, and uh, there was another group that used to support us called Charlie Brown in Cardiff, or we'd support them sometimes, and they were kind of like Velvet's Mud Honey Cramps kind of group mm-hmm. called Charlie Brown. And the guitarist was a guy called Matthew Scott. And so when Misery split up, I got together with Matthew and the bass player, a guy called Lee from Charlie Brown, and uh, that was Jack. Nice, yeah. You you could see his talent uh, already forming then, I assume, uh, with the Charlie Brown stuff. Um, yeah, it wasn't my type of music, but... He, he, I think he was the only person that answered the ad, to be honest. Um, but we didn't get on because Matthew didn't really uh, get on with uh, many people. But we wrote a, a song. Um, he gave me some chords on a tape. I put some words to it and I wrote the middle eight. Do you still remember and the song? I just put it up on Bandcamp. It's called The Trouble With Girls. Oh, fantastic. And um, I thought, wow, this song is different to anything I could write alone. And I'm listening to these chords that this guy is playing, which are just like C and F. Uh-huh. But to me, they just they sound like magical chords. And also the middle eight I wrote fits in. Anyway, so I did that. Um, before we uh, rehearsed it, he said, let me look at the lyrics, and um, which no one's ever done before or since. And the opening line is, um, I watch as her clothes fall. And he, he read them and he said, okay, her clothes are off in the first line. That's cool. <laughs> and, um, th- yeah, this, th- this began our, our Palookaville um, songwriting. Nice. Partnership. Yeah, and you continued to work with him throughout uh, Jack's career um, and, until you went solo. But let's let's uh, continue to talk about Jack. Um, so you had you had a rudimentary version of Jack in Cardiff then. Um, yes, yes. And then, and w- go ahead. Well, we always. It's interesting because I, I recently met up with Matthew. Uh, last week, uh-huh. and I I, pick, I picked up a box of all like old tapes and stuff. This is uh, the stuff that's going up on Bandcamp, and I remembered that we were basically like a kind of velvety Nick Cave, gallon drug Scott Walkery group. All great stuff. But I would, I but I would always insist on like having an accordion or like a flute or a recorder as well. Uh huh. And I was just um, remembering the sound checks. So we'd be supporting some, you know, like a uh, death metal group. <laughs> and then it would be our turn to sound check. And the guy go, yeah, drums. And then you'd hear him go, uh, accordion, you know, <laughs> or uh, penny whistle, Jewish harp. Um, now, were yeah, the uh, things that so you were playing or you had other members? In, in oh, the Christ, no. Oh, okay. No, I, we we always seem to have a, like a, a fat girl uh, doing these. Um, <laughs> but um, so, so you mentioned yeah. So we go we ahead. Were playing. Sorry. 
we were playing Cardiff to nobody, mm-hmm. you know, constantly. To uh, no fan base, nobody liked us, but we, you know, we just kept doing it. So you didn't have, you didn't build up like a local following. No, and and, and to this day, uh, my music is kind of seen with suspicion, if at all, in Wales. So, why do you think that it, it is? Just must be. I don't know. I really don't know. Actually, um, I guess it's because maybe partly my attitude. I'm never big on being patriotic, or and I don't speak Welsh. Right. But yeah, Wales was always by far the tiniest non-market for any music I've done in any guise. That's interesting because there's been some really big artists that have come out of Wales, you know, like people like Tom Jones, <laughs> for instance, you know, or, or on a yeah. smaller level like Catatonia or um, Super Furry Animals, Super stuff like furries, that. Yeah, Gorkies. Yeah, Gorkies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you listen to any and some of those. Uh, Guys are fine songwriters, musicians, and whatever. They're um, they all kind of embrace and make a thing of being Welsh, hmm. which is something I was always totally against. You know, I mean, I wanted, I was, I always felt of myself as European. So, uh-huh. okay, so, so, was it the you know just not building up a following in Cardiff that made you decide to move to London? Or it just you always felt like I gotta, I I feel more at home in London, or at that point in your life, or what made you move? Well, at that point, there was no um, real successful Welsh groups. Um, if you wanted a record deal, you had to move to London, and uh, yeah, I, I just thought you know I have to take that risk and. Uh, there was no uh, possibility of getting like, a record deal with anybody if if you were in Cardiff. I mean, no one was coming to see us. We were we were playing jazz clubs on a Sunday to like four people, right. and some, even our girlfriends wouldn't come to the gigs. You know, <laughs> I know that. Or, or we, I know, I know. Oh no, yeah, I've heard it all. Love. Um, or we were supporting, you know, like power trios. So. Yeah. So, and is there you had to go to London? Did Cardiff ever have a label like you know Manchester had Factory? Uh, you know. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. They had uh, Angst Records, I think. Okay. But um, I was uh, completely uh, unaware. You didn't have enough angst. <laughs> Enough what? Angst. Oh, no, yes. I had too much angst. Possibly. <laughs> like angst overload. So so what year yeah, yeah. What year did you um, pack up and move to London? And my understanding is that the rest of Jack didn't come with you at that point. No. Um, I, uh, I decided I was going to go to London. Otherwise, I, I had to try. And uh, I moved in 1993. And I uh, applied for university, even though I have no qualifications. I did it like this thing called an access course, which allowed you to get into university. So I got into university in Middlesex studying uh, religion and Russian, you know. So I just had to get to London with a little bit of money and uh, a grant or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rest of Jack 
didn't move. Uh, but then Matthew did about a month later, which is a, a bloody miracle, you know. He, he must have realized that you had something good going. I don't know. I've never spoken to him about it, but he also came to Middlesex University. And when I think back on it, um, would I have, you know, would I have called the project? Uh, I would have undoubtedly made music, but would I have called it Jack? But I have such a special, or had such a special writing relationship with Matthew. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, it's it's just a miracle that he joined me. And, uh, and then we got signed within a year, you know, it was really quick. Well, you, you must have liked that name because you did stick with it, even though the lineup changed when you moved to London. Um, it was you and Matthew, but then other people. Can you talk a little bit about the name, um, where it came from? I can't remember, actually, but um, I think I think at one point I wanted to call it Anthony, the group Anthony. I thought that would be funny, but... Um, and uh, cardigans, oh no, cardigan. I wanted to call it as well, um, but Matthew wouldn't have it called Anthony. Um, and I think the reason we kept the name was because we'd written already some um, songs like "Dress You in Mourning," uh-huh. uh, "Hope Is a Liar." We'd already written those as Jack, so you know. And these are classic. It's tracks. quite hard to think of it. Yeah, well, um, those I are classic so, songs yeah. that appear on the debut album Pioneer Soundtracks. They are indeed. Yes. Pioneer Soundtracking by the Jacks. <laughs> so did you did you have that thing with that name where people just assume that you were Jack? No, actually, no. Oh, okay. No. Although you, you've got a couple of um, interesting... Um, I remember when Jack were like hot... I came out of a club on Charing Cross Road and um, someone had actually gone to the trouble of printing flyers Uh and there was a picture of Jack on the flyer with a cross through it and there was a picture of, um, do you remember a Stock Aiton Waterman act called the Reynolds Girls? No. They had a hit, I'd Rather Jack than Fleetwood Mac. Do you remember that? I should cover this, no doubt. But someone had put on the flyer, I'd rather the Reynolds girls than Jack. Cute. And and also, you, you know, you get you get stuff like um, when I did the album with Momus, I had terrible reviews, and I had some reviews like uh, in Select, I think I had a two-word review, which was Jack shit. <laughs> which I think is up there with the Rolling Stone review of a Yes album. Do you know what that was? It was a one-word review. Was it just No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So uh, those early days in London, you were in, in university, uh, you reunited with Matthew. Uh, how did uh, forming a band in London happen? Because you were an out, you were both outsiders. You had this core of the group, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to meet a bunch of musicians or anything. No. And, um, as far as university went, I only went to like two lectures. I think the entire time I was there, I had no interest uh, in academia. In Russian, but I did. Religion. Well, I, I changed to English. I think oh. when I got there, but um, I put up a little notice in the cafeteria, and I put an ad in Melody Maker, and um, 
it was through the cafeteria ad that I met Colin um, Williams and Richard Adderley. Excuse me. And um, the melody maker brought me uh, Patrick Poulter and George Wright. So it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was the usual, um, you know, thing. But it, it didn't matter so much because the, the core was me and Matthew. It was whoever we played with. It would right. still be Jack, I think. Yeah. Okay, and so uh, once you had the the band together, um, and when did Audrey come into the scene? Because something that made you guys stand out early on was, as you said, your use of other instruments besides your standard guitar, bass, and drums. And she was an American violin player. Um, so, yeah, how did from, that happen? From Manhattan. <laughs> um, do you know? I hate it when someone asks you for directions in the street and and you have to say, I don't know. Oh, yeah. I but, um, usually I end up giving up the wrong direction. I can't remember how Audrey uh, came into the equation. I really can't. But, I mean, I always wanted to use strings. Yeah. And so perhaps I think someone suggested her or... I can't, I can't remember how she came into the group or left the group. Um, although going back... Um, and listening to some of these demos and uh, I found she was br- so brilliant and playing with her uh, in New York last December she was she's so great and she's a beautiful person as well but um, I can't remember the ins and outs but um, I was we were dead lucky to have someone so fine you know yeah yeah she's she's brilliant and uh, didn't she, she do is. the string arrangements um, on the at least on Pioneer soundtracks and the early she did and stuff? Yeah. She did, and um, you, did you listen to Sacco and Vanzetti? I did, yeah. I mean, I have known that for twenty odd years, and uh, her string trial that was just fantastic. Yeah, very cool. So, so, um, so you've got the the lineup together. Was it fully formed then before Two Pure came into the picture, or were you still kind of experimenting with people um, when you got signed to Two Pure? No, we were we were pretty fully formed. I mean, I remember uh, when I put the Melody Maker advert. Some people coming to my flat in Archway, and it was kind of uh, immediately apparent, you know, if these people weren't right. Um, but I remember when George Wright, the keyboard player, turned up, he was just, you know, he's not a great musician, but he just clicked. You know, he looked like Michael Caine. Um, he was fantastic, you know, Um yeah, so we, and the drummer was like, we had a handsome, I mean, he had very short legs, but we had a handsome drummer, you know, that's quite rare. So, you know, we were well formed and we we didn't play that many gigs. We, do you remember a group called um, My White Bedroom? Mm, no, I can't say that I do. No, no. Um, but anyway, we, we rehearsed in th- this guy who'd been in this group in London Bridge and he would hold these club nights in London Bridge, which is like the financial district. Yeah. And um, no one would come. But we did like two gigs there and then we did one at the Dublin Castle and um, we were signed. Yeah. How did you get signed to Two Pure? You were playing shows in London. Uh, was it no, 93? We were, 
Um, it would have been 1990. I didn't move to London till uh, you know, for the university year. So that was October, mm-hmm. September. In fact, that's where the line in Dress Your Morning comes from. Uh, September is dawning because uh, I'd moved away. Um, no, so 94, we did some demos in Wimbledon, Winter Come Summer, Dress Your Morning. Um, and they, it was always tough doing demos because nobody had any money. And you'd always have studios. You'd have to work at night, you know, from midnight to like 6 a.m. or 8 a.m. or whatever. And I've always hated staying up past midnight. Hmm. So you'd do speed and it'd be horrible and you'd come out of the studio and no one would have any money. And I remember some of the guys didn't want to pay for the um, strings we used on the demos. I used a violinist and a cellist and a sax. Mm -hmm. And I remember Matthew refused to give me any money, and he said, uh, well, I don't want strings. You're just a fucking arse lick for strings. I always remember that. <laughs> well, so, I mean, in a way, could you understand his point at that time with what was happening musically? I mean, it seemed like strings weren't a common occurrence in pop music at, at that point. 94. Yeah. No, I, well, I thought that was the reason one of the reasons it was good yeah i agree um i mean the original brief of jack was the walker brothers the three walker brothers backed by the velvets that that's what i wanted to achieve you know but i don't think i ever got there really but um but you did you got your own thing which i think is probably more important yeah yeah you're right yeah so we did a demo, and then we did very few shows. But then we did this weird show in the Dublin Castle in Camden. Mm-hmm. And I would be the one to get gigs. No one else did fuck all. <laughs> so I would be doing the posters, everything. Um, and this gig was supporting. I can't remember their name. but uh, And actually, this gig is on YouTube, some of the clips. And... Um, this was night. No, this was ninety four, I think, or early ninety five, maybe. And we'd done about three or four gigs, and I got us this gig supporting this American trio, who had just been signed to like Parlophone or something. And um, it was the strangest gig because we were br- brilliant, and everyone in the audience, which it was packed, loved us. It was like even my girlfriend at the time said, uh, like, who are you? You know, afterwards, everything went right. And I remember after we finished the support, everyone left. And there was about five people and the drummer from this American group was crying. God love him. And uh, a guy from uh, Piao Records or something had seen that and he'd gone to Tupio and say, you've got to sign these guys. So we did one other gig at the Laurel Tree, and that's uh, where we were signed. So it was quite quick. And and Too Pure were a pretty cool label at the time. I mean, they they were signing you know people like PJ Harvey, and and Leica and, and bands like that, mm. and Stereo Lab. So I mean, you were in good company getting signed to Too Pure. Did that factor into your decision to decide to sign with them? Like, you know, they've done well with these other great artists even though they're kind of a small label 
Well, I hate to say it, but they they lived on, on the same road as me, <laughs> and it was really, really. E- I've always been like lazy, and uh, it was really easy to get there. But what happened? They professed an interest, and I liked the guy, the head of A and R, Paul Cox. I had loved that first PJ Harvey album, Dry, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Matthew loved Stereo Lab. Uh, and the drummer loved Stereo Lab, but uh, I just thought this is our chance. If we don't sign now, we'll never get signed. So I, I just went for it, um, which I regret now because immediately afterwards, I was kind of summoned to like Chrysalis and WEA, and people would be oh, and I thought I was going to these places to discuss a publishing deal. Mm-hmm. But they were offering me a record deal because Jack were like hot, you know, like uh-huh. many other groups. Uh, and I'd say, oh, no, no, we've signed to Tupure. And they'd be like, these labels would say, well, for like a singles deal? And I'd say, no, no, it's, it's, it's like four albums or something. And they go, oh, Christ, really? Who's your manager? And it's like, I didn't have a manager. But um, I liked the people at Tupure and... Um, they were backed by Beggar's Banquet, so they weren't that small. Yeah. And uh, I, I still think we did a good job on those records, you know. Yeah, no, they sounded great. They didn't sound like you were wanting for, you know, budget or anything like that. So I, I think, you know, it worked out okay. Um, Kid Stardust, then, so was the first yeah. single that you put out uh, on Too Pure. <clears throat> And you famously, well, I don't know if it's famous, but you really don't seem to like that song, even though I think well, Jack fans are are on board with it, you know, for sure. Yeah, well, it, it, it's famous for, for you, me, and Mikey, and Jamie Galland. <laughs> no, I didn't like it particularly. Um, someone this is your said, first oh, single. Uh, well, no, 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 see... That first seven inch, it was 500 copies out, and it was a double A side with I Didn't Mean a Marie, but uh-huh. no one no one ever seems to remember that, you know. Um, it was a double A side. I Didn't Mean a Marie was much more where I was at. But what would happen with the record company is, oh, no, the, the radio plugger would always just go for an up-tempo song. Yeah. And, um, I mean... And that single was single of the week, a melody maker. Um, and how many people's first singles are mel- uh, single of the week in anything, you know? So right. But I, 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 I always thought it was a bit. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I think it's a great song. I love it. I, I, mm. I, I think it's really good. It took me a, a while to kind of penetrate what it was about lyrically. Um, mm. but I mean, it's just got a great hook and your, okay, your cool. vocals are great. And yeah, I, I, I personally think it should have been on pioneer soundtracks, but mm. you know, who knows? I mean, that might've thrown off the mood. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it was too throwaway for me. But having said that, as you know, being a big David Sylvian and Scott Walker fan, I mean, they're always dissing their early work or whatever. So, you know, like, fuck them, you know. So if you like it, that's great. Good, good. So uh, so then after Kid Stardust, you got to work on recording Pioneer Soundtracks, the debut yeah. album. 
and that's a, a amazing record. Um, Thank you. And uh, you know, some of my favorite songs of all time are on that. I mean, wow. I, I especially oh. love "Of Lights." I mean, that yeah. What a but what an odd way to kick off a record, which you know I love that it's you know entirely different. But that long fade in. Um, and then it's it's almost spoken word for a little bit before you start singing. It's it's so different than like any of the records that were out at the time, for sure. Um, were you conscious of trying to do something different, or this just all just came naturally? Well, both. I think. I mean, I knew I could sing. I I never ever thought of myself as a singer. But I remember when I was recording that album, Peter Walsh, whose last album had been Tilt. Uh, he just, I did a take and he said, he said, Anthony, I think you're a great singer. I mean, I don't think I'm a great singer, but to hear that gave me such confidence. So what I wanted to do on Of Lights was not sing. You know, um, I wanted to put people off. If they didn't like that, they'd forget the rest of the record. I wanted to be perverse, I suppose. <laughs> but, um, uh, I mean, some people only... I remember Steve Lamack coming to a show early on and leaving after Winter Comes Summer, which we opened with, and saying to our press agent, I don't think the world needs another blue airplanes. <laughs> okay. You know, but it's all, you know, I mean, the rest of the set wasn't, you know, like that, you know. So yeah. that track, I just thought, I, I was really happy with the lyrics. And looking back, I think that track is like one of the only really original sounding things Jack did. Hmm. I don't think you could really link it. Maybe a bit of um, kraut rocky kind of thing, but right. no other group, I don't think, specifically you could reference. Yeah, uh, it, it definitely uh, it definitely was original, and especially in the context of kicking off a debut album, it it was very different. Um, mm. But. Uh, I mean, great songs, Winter Come Summer, White Jazz, Biography of a First Son, Filthy Names. I mean, these are all, like, great songs. And you say that you've written some of them in Cardiff. Did the rest come to you in London? Uh, yeah, yeah, most of them. Yeah. I did mean Marie was demoed in Cardiff, but uh, Winter Come Summer was written after Halloween. I spent on acid in London. Um, and uh, biography of first son that was the night the first night I met George the keyboard player we went to an indie club and um, you know they were playing St. Etienne and Pulp and it was all groovy mm -hmm. and he said oh do you want a drink or two and I said yeah yeah sure thanks I'll have a, you know, whiskey and ginger and I was like 10 minutes later I'm like well, where, the, where is he and I looked up at the stairwell it was a staircase and George was uh, punching squaddies down the um, the staircase. <laughs> you know, squ uh, soldier, soldiers. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there he goes, losing fights in public, you know. So that was written by that. And yeah, so the majority was written in, um, in London. But uh, they do stand up. I mean, a lot of people... I've lived all over the world. I've left most every place, but I, I've met a lot of people who, uh, filthy names in particular. Mm -hmm. Did I do filthy names in New York? 
I I am blanking on that. I I mm. I feel like Good you too. did. I feel like you did, but yeah. Anyway, I have to go back and check my <laughs> sound check. Check it out on Bandcamp. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so so you know you you mentioned like biography of a first one being inspired by a particular incident um were the the rest of these songs did is it uh, all inspired by stuff that was happening to you or it's, was there you know just a an element of fiction like just you know trying to come up with characters and figure out their lives no no i i mean it was all uh it was all um, semi-autobiographical. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, I think your first album's going to be that. I don't think you're going to be writing in character, re- really. You know, I mean, when you're that young, I was like 22, 23, you think you're the most important person in the universe, and in some ways maybe you are. So, um, I, you know, I felt... With lines like in the Hope is a Liar, uh, pretty soon I'll get up and go out and then come back again. Um, the end of biography of a person, uh, I don't need anyone, just someone. I don't need anything, just... Um, I thought I had these were something no one else was saying, especially of lights. Right. Um, you know, uh, I didn't think there was any cliche, any rock cliches in these I mean someone said to me once that white jazz was a prototype of uh, Oasis's live forever but um, of course I could never sing or say you and I are going to live forever I had to sing you and I are above it all and we'll survive it all you know, you know what I mean yeah. so no it was, it was all from me yeah and and so the the album came out on Two Pure in the UK, and then in America, you got signed to the American label, uh, yeah, <laughs> formerly Deaf American. Um, mm. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Because I I really don't I just struggle to this day to see the connection uh, between what they do or have done at that point even, and then and then Jack. Um, it just what was it? Rick Rubin, wasn't it? Yeah, Rick Rubin. Yeah, and Beastie he's Boys. of course known for yeah the Beastie Boys, and then later stuff with like the Johnny Cash American recordings and all that. Um, Neil Diamond. Yeah. yeah, Neil Diamond. Yeah, yeah. So, how, how did that come to be? Well, we were playing a gig. Jack were playing a gig once in Barcelona with Lamb Chop, and uh, everyone in Jack, apart from me, went out on a huge drinking uh, jag with Lamb Chop, and came back, and Jack was so offensive. Um, I remember the guitar player, Richard, who was a lovely, polite guy. He, he was pissed out of his brain. He came up to me in the hotel room and said, uh, uh, if you give me a blowjob, I promise I'll come in your face. Oh, I was like, get away from me. And then, like, Matthew came up and said, you and me outside now. I was like, get away from me. I was like, is this what we're like? We're nightmares. But then I talked to Kurt Wagner he was much more gentlemanly and sober. He, I think they might have been on American or I don't know. And he told me that Rick Rubin hated Pioneer soundtracks. 
So I think it was just a licensing deal that uh, Beggar's Banquet had with them. Oh, okay. But um, yeah, but um, it was amazing to hear that Rick Rubin actually did hate us. You know, <laughs> or that he was even aware of you is is interesting. Mm. You know, well, if it was on his label, I guess so. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, it, that album came out in America. It was the only Jack album to come out in America, and we didn't go there to play. There was hardly any press, you know. Was but, there uh, was there offers to bring you guys over to tour? Oh, they always yeah the CMJ festival in New York. I remember, but um, the thing with Jack it was seven people and plus crew, and so it would be like twelve people. And uh, it is a shame because I've yet to do a good gig in in America, and um, you know, i.e., with a band. Right. But um, it was cool to be on American. But um, it didn't do us much good, and, you know. And Kurt told me, uh, "Rick hates you guys," you know. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it it did some good because I know that there's a lot of American fans out there that discovered you because of a Pioneer soundtracks being mm. put out here. Um, Where were they in December? <laughs> well, uh, <coughs> you know, they might not yeah. have known. Uh, yeah. They might not have known. No, um, but uh, a fantastic album, uh, Thank and you. you you toured Europe pretty extensively at that time. It seems like, yeah, we we, we toured nonstop. You know, uh, I recently came across an itinerary from that time, and uh, it, it, I can't remember being in Strasbourg or like Cologne. You know, it was just every single day you you were doing stuff and. Um, and of course, we did these suede tours in Britain, uh, which were felt uh, enormous. But yeah, always playing abroad festivals and stuff. It was busy, and it, it was good because you were young and you could you could take it then. You know, that sounds like a good night out. Uh, Jack and suede on the same uh, stage. I would have definitely gone to that. Yeah, I guess in retrospect, if you're into that kind of stuff. It would have been because Suede asked us to do those tours and they paid for our hotels and catering because they were such fans. Nice. You know? yeah. um, so I've really got great memories. I met Matt last year in Cardiff. Um, uh, yeah, I guess in retrospect, um, it, yeah, I guess we were kind of similar. I've just re recently got back into Suede and they are excellent. Um, do you like them? I do, especially the the first couple records uh, with Bernard Butler. I think are pretty fantastic. Yeah, Dogman Star is my favorite, but I love uh, the recent one. Um, wow, which I can't remember. The Blue Hour. Yeah, yeah. I love that and and, and sci-fi lullabies. I love. Yeah, great B sides. So let's talk about the second album, The Jazz Age. Um, yeah. What was the gestation period like for that? What was inspiring you as far as writing at that point? Well, it was a bit of a nightmare, actually, because Pioneer Soundtracks uh, had done quite well. I mean, critically, it, it had done great. Um, and it sold okay. And... I remember being in the uh, two pure offices because I, me and my girlfriend lived there for about a week while I was waiting for a new flat. And I remember going into the office and just idly looking through paperwork. And I, I, I found this um, fax 
that was like, oh, we agree to uh, buy the licensing of Pioneer Soundtracks in Taiwan for £10,000, mm-hmm. right? So when you think that album, if you look on Discogs, there's like 30 versions of it. Mm-hmm. So that album was licensed pretty much across the world. Yeah. And um, so they made a lot of money, you know, even though it wasn't like a chart hit or anything like that. Right. So after that, lots of people wanted to sign us. And um, we spent a a year, uh, we spent pretty much most of 1997 trying to get off to Pure. And uh, that's why I did the Jacques album, because, you know, I was just sitting around... Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, in between, you, you put out the, the Jacques album on Setanta, and you had Momus involved mm, with that. Yeah, well, that's probably another podcast in itself. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but there's some but, good songs on that, uh, that thanks. record. Yeah. Especially yeah. like uh, When I Was King. Yeah, that's that, that title was taken from an Eddie Murphy song, you know. Eddie Murphy? Yeah, but uh, he he had a single called "When We Were Kings," and I thought oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah. Right. So th- we spent a whole year with lawyers and stuff, trying to get us off to Pure and other labels, uh, offering us money. Um, and we had a terrible, useless manager. Um, so, and Peter Walsh was supposed to produce the ja- uh, Jazz Age. But um, because of the delay, he was working on a Simple Minds album by the time we uh, reconciled all these differences. So we went back to Tupio because they they said, oh, we'll put you on Beggar's Banquet and you get more money and more budget, everything. Because it was impossible to leave uh, them without paying them like half a million quid or something. Right. But it was quite frustrating because we had the songs, we wanted to keep the momentum going and um so yeah before the jazz age so i remember peter walsh wasn't available because he was doing some simple minds album i remember speaking to jim care because i phoned up the studio and speak to peter and uh i've absolutely nothing memorable to tell you about my conversation with jim care it was <laughs> completely oh hi hello pete hang on Nah, he's, he's busy. All right, thank you, Jim. All right, really. really. <laughs> that was it. Um, but I got... Um, so for a new producer, I got uh, Gus Dudgeon to come to my flat. Uh-huh. Gus Dudgeon had produced Space Oddity um, and all the Elton John records of the 70s, you know, like Yellow Brick Road and uh, uh, Brown Deer Cowboy. So he came to my flat, and that's another podcast in itself that was uh, hilarious. Um, but anyway, we settled for Darren. But the thing was recorded like a year later than it should have been, basically. Yeah, it came out in 98, so two years after Pioneer Soundtracks. So, And, and at, at that point in a band's life, uh, it was like, that the next year a record had to come out the next year to maintain momentum it seemed like well i wonder about that you know i mean if we'd had a hit or something but 
Um, I think what really soured expectation and opinion was um, the How to Make Love for Jacques album because that got like the worst reviews of anything I've ever read. And um, I remember the rest of the band uh, in Jack who didn't like or rate Momus just laughing hysterically. You know, there were, there was reviews like um, Anthony Reynolds thinks he's Scott Walker, but he is in fact Murray Walker. <laughs> That's like... I don't know who that is, but... Uh... M- Murray Walker is... Um, he was like uh, uh, Walter Cronkite. Oh, okay. Oh, equivalent of a sports commentator. I don't. There think was that's another. Fair. There was another review, but th- this was incredible. This was the enemy review. It said Anthony Reynolds thinks he's uh, an intercontinental European Brian Ferry esque figure, but he is in fact uh, a diminutive Welshman in a cheap suit. Ouch! And. So diminutive, short, right? And I remember the day that was published, I was at a gig in the Marquee or something, uh-huh. and a friend of my press agent, Justine, came up to me and said, do you know, until I read that review, I didn't know you were short. <laughs> and it was the Jack shit one. Uh-huh. And it, you know, so I think that kind of c- coloured something that, in it, that year. It's weird because, you know, it seemed like, record criticism especially at the time just they they had to be extreme they either adored something like this is total godhead or they would just like pan it beyond belief like in this case because that record while i think as a fan that it is a little bit flawed i personally Mm, i think it could use better production um has some great stuff on it and to you know completely dismiss it like that i don't i don't think it's fair at all well the thing is all the vocals were first takes and they were done on cocaine hmm. uh it was when i discovered cocaine so they were um quite uh, terrible some of those vocals you know um but usually you would have a producer who would say oh, no i mean when i did the jazz age with darren allison I was literally singing the vocals to steaming for like 12 hours. Uh-huh. Uh, with Momus, he was like, yeah, yeah, is that okay? And I'm like, of course it's okay. Listen, anyway, forget about this. Now, when you did the Poison Boyfriend, right, you know that line there, right? Oh. Um, yeah, so there was no mentor, and possibly Momus was a bit afraid of me. But anyway... I, I still have to suffer people telling me that's their favorite thing I've ever done, you know. So. Huh. Yeah, you just never know. I mean, for me, at the time, when I heard When I Was King, I thought, oh, cool, this is going to be like an electronic version of Jack. I well, it was supposed to be uh, like the album that Momus had done with um, some Japanese bird, um, like a real, like, uh, dubby kind of trip-hoppy Uh-huh. That's album. what I was expecting. but it That's turned, what I wanted. Yeah. But, we only had a week to do it, so oh, anyway. <laughs> that, that's another podcast, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, your main <coughs> project, of course, was Jack, and, and then you you got to work on writing the material uh, and, and recording uh, The Jazz Age. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how that 
how it went and you know um some of the inspiration behind some of the songs like some of your best songs i think are on this record it definitely yeah. wasn't a sophomore slump um as far as you know creativity and and great is music. that granddaddy sophomore slump software slump i think was oh, okay. their album but i mean three o'clock in the morning is one of your best songs um my world versus your world these are classic tracks Steaming. they are good yeah yeah these should have been hit singles in a better world i would think well that's the whole focus of this uh podcast isn't it palookaville <laughs> um but uh, it, it is odd. It's like three o'clock in the morning. It's got like over a hundred thousand views on YouTube, mm-hmm. and the other J- Jack songs have like got like maybe thirty or something. So yeah, that was a good song, and that was written before. That was written during Pioneer soundtracks. And you just didn't. It wasn't feel like it was, it wasn't, Yeah, it wasn't ready. But uh, we did play it for Peter Walsh. I remember. Um, a lot of the songs for the album were written um, when we were touring Pioneer Soundtracks and um, uh, it got to a point then where it was difficult for me and Matthew to sit, to sit down together and write like we used to because now we had a, me and him we had some money because of publishing and it was like there was a lot of other things we'd rather do than sit in a flat writing together so he would give me tapes and but I don't think it suffered because of that no wow um um I mean as I said like when Matthew presents me with music it's it's just uh, otherworldly, you know. It must have been like what Morrissey felt like uh, with Johnny Marr. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah. The, so I, th- I think pretty much all of the Jazz Age songs were written before we got into the studio. Um, Lolita L was possibly one of the last, um, but we went through a couple of producers, as I said earlier. But. Um, yeah, I thought it was uh, it was a strong album and uh, and well, you know, I've got a big thing about production. For me, um, production is the semen that holds the sperm, the sperm holding the being the songs. Okay. So, like a, a lot of Momus's recent uh, output um, is just sperm. Do you know what I mean? Is there's no sure. conduit. Um, and I think it's a well-recorded album. Yeah, so, uh, I agree. Um, and like "Love and Death" in the afternoon, I think is one of your your best vocal performances, and just thanks. has a, a massive hook. Um, and uh, yeah, I I really feel like this should have been the album that launched you into a bigger. Uh, I, I, mm. I won't say superstardom because, you know, it, we're still talking about music that is definitely not in the mainstream. Um, and it's it's so rare that, you know, a band comes along that is far outside the mainstream and and changes music, um, musical taste to be. Give me an example know, of, of, of that. There's someone that has done that. Japan. Maybe Radiohead. Pulp. 
Um, okay. Yeah, I feel like you know they they kind of, and I don't even like a lot of the later Radiohead <laughs> records, to be honest. But they somehow managed to become like superstars while putting out their most difficult stuff. Sure. You know what I mean? Um, so uh, with with Jack, I I I don't expect, I didn't expect, uh, you know, that kind of level of success. But I still feel like you should have been like maybe the size of a band like the National, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know who the National are on, but um, the more someone invests in you, the more they uh, promote you. That's yeah. what I've. That's what I've discovered. So was but, there not um, a lot of promotion for the Jazz Age? No, there was. There was actually. But uh, there's, there's two reasons, I think, why the album wasn't bigger. One, my best friend once said to me, uh, Anthony, the reason you're not bigger is because you're not good looking enough. <laughs> the second reason is that none of those songs got on radio for whatever reason. I mean... Do you ever hear David Sylvian or Tom Waits on the radio? I don't know. On occasion, um, but you know, yeah, I, but not, but not playlisted. Yeah, with my musical taste, something like "Steamin'" should have been a top ten hit. You know. Um. Yeah. Well, it's just a. It, you know, it's like got a lot of energy. It's got a Pablo. big catchy chorus. It's, you know, should have been big, but. You just never know. It's all about luck, I guess. Um, well, you know what? It's like I have a nice life, so uh, I don't beat myself up about it. And, oh, uh, I'm not saying you should regret anything. Absolutely. And what I would love to do is fake my own death and then see if I do get like buried in uncut and mojo and go to my own funeral, which would be full of hot ladies, you know. <laughs> Um, you, you can, you. I mean, my gosh, I was, I was around so many groups then, like um, uh, Geneva, Whipping Boy. Um, uh, there was another group, you know, Strange Love. I wasn't a fan of any of these, but you thought, well, why aren't they bigger? Right. You know, well, Whipping Boy, especially. It's, it's, it's uh, quite. Yeah, I mean, it is quite odd why. Some some groups make it and others don't. Yeah, I don't know if it's image, timing, luck, but I'm certainly um, I'm just relieved that I made those records and they exist and they're out there. A any further stories you want to uh, tell about uh, recording the Jazz Age or touring it or promoting it? Because that '98 was an interesting time because Britpop kind of I feel like the bubble kind of burst on Britpop and um and you guys were I don't know if you ever were considered part of that scene but no, you were we certainly out at the time. No. Um I remember the guy at the record company saying uh you need to listen to the radio. Right? He said, you know, this was for the jazz age. He said uh, you need to write something for Radio 1. And I said, well, who, you know, like, who do you mean? He said, oh, like Shed 7, Blue Tones. And I just said, you know, because it was true, uh, I, I'm writing to compete with Nina Simone and, and, and Bowie and uh, uh, Michelle Legrand. And um, 
uh, what's his name? The guy that uh, it was that guy that looks like a shrunken um, prune. There were all those incredible um, Baccarat. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I'm not, you know. So yeah, it was. I, uh, I mean, I did mix with those people, you know, uh, pulp and uh, and suede and obviously the blue toes. So they were huge fans of the jazz age, and they they asked us to tour. Um, but um, I think they're an underrated band. I think a lot of people lump them in with kind of the the blander. <laughs> groups from um the from the Britpop era but i i feel like their first record at least was uh, you know pretty good what was their big hit da, da, slight, da, slight da, return da, da. i i ripped off that melody for sleeping makes me thirsty oh. um da, do you go although i can't remember how but anyway they asked us to talk and they they were lovely men they were lovely people, but um, I remember I gave the singer Mark Morris. Mm -hmm. I gave him a copy of Nina Simone's Baltimore and uh, Tim Harding's Greatest Hits, and I said, "This is what you need to do. You know, this is what you need to listen to." And I guess he didn't, but um, <laughs> you know, they were they were lovely people. So we were, you know, in that world. Mm -hmm. And I loved Suede and I loved Pulp. I liked some of Blur, um, but I, I like Blur less now I've read Brett Anderson's uh, autobiographies. Have you read those? I haven't. Oh, no, they're good. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was quite driven, so <clears throat> uh, I would... I, I was really trying to write and record to the level of um, don't let me be misunderstood mm -hmm. and um, um, uh, oh gosh what's in this age of grand illusion what's that Bowie song you came into my life out of my dreams oh what's that Bowie song I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. Sweet angel born once again. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess so. I guess so. Uh, so, so there was a, like a four year period uh, in between the jazz age and the, the final Jack album, the end of the way it's always yeah. been. And during that time, the the lineup of Jack shifted radically. I mean, what happened mm. in that four year period? Um, and and that the last Jack album didn't come out on Too Pure. So this must have been a, a tumultuous period. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it didn't feel like it at the time, but it's quite weird when you sign to a record label. And that record label have got like lots of other acts, but they're totally in love with you. So when we signed to Pure, uh, they had these two like gorgeous press officer girls, Susan and Trish. And I would go in to the office to talk about artwork and they would say, oh, man, 
you know, this gorgeous girl was, oh, I've just learned filthy names last night. Uh, can you tell me the codes? And you, you were just like um, chocolate, you know. But what happened, basically, commercially, those two albums failed, and then they signed Hefner. Uh, who, who I liked, who I thought he was a great songwriter, Darren. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it was just like, you're yesterday's shit. You know, and uh, it's like, oh no, it's all about Hefner now. Um, it, it was quite harsh, but I kind of understood it. Um, and there was an option for them to take up our next album, which would have been like a million quid or something. And they weren't going to do that. So they, this is all very boring, but they said, uh, we'll give you 10 grand, but we're not really into you anymore. So I said, well, like, fuck off. And um, all the rest of Jack didn't get any publishing money. Me and Matthew were signed to Warner's, so, you know, we were doing well. The rest of Jack left to do uh, jobs. And... Um, I got a deal then with Satanta again to do uh, to Stars, mm -hmm. the second Jacques, Jacques record. Yeah, um, I think I think we did um, La Bella La Discotheque first. It was an EP. Do you know that EP? Yes, with Simon Ramond, who was a big Jack fan. Uh, you know the Cocteau Twins bass player. Yes. He'd emailed us and said, oh, my God, you guys are great and all the rest of it. So we, I got like a grand to record. So we, he produced uh, La Bella, La Discotheque. But the weird thing was I've always hated the um, Topto Twins. And no one else in Jack liked them either. So for the whole time we were working with him, and he was a nice man, we had to pretend that we'd never heard of the Cocteau Twins. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd be like, okay, let's do the drum. And he'd go, oh, um, he goes, yeah, I'm thinking of doing something. Um, I don't know if you know, like, uh, Pinky uh, um, Punkle Shuffle uh, EP I did. I'm like, no, I, I don't know that. Uh, so, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I, I, you know the cocktail? I said, I think I, I heard, like, Pinky Dew Drops, like, Blob Blobs or something. Uh -huh. Um because I really loathe them. Huh. And um, anyway, and during the recording of that EP, he fell out enormously with Matthew as well. So, but then I started recording to stars. So, you know, I was, I was busy. That certainly didn't take the, the four year period. Um, oh, no, no. So that was 99. The album came out in 2000. Mm -hmm. Um, the rest of Jack had gone on to normal lives. And in about 2001, um, oh, we'd met these maniacs in Paris, a management team called um, Pop Lane. And uh, they got us to deal with the, the uh, decrepit school, who I'd never heard of. Um, but it was nice money and you know it was kind of desperate but I remember at the time thinking in fact I remember when the jazz age came out I thought if we don't get a hit now it then my future
future life is going to be really difficult mm. because there'll be no reference. Like, you know, even with Japan, you can say, oh, ghosts or forbidden colors or there's no hits. There's not going to be anything for anyone to uh, tag on. Right. And um, I remember being aware of that, but uh, we got a deal, I think, in 2001 for Crepuscule, and uh, we'd always loved France, and France had always loved us, and it was good money. And um, But I, I kind of knew that it was over, really. I, I remember my agent, Paul Bolton, who had been like Neil Diamond, Neil Young, and Bowie's agent. I remember us having a phone call, and uh, I said, oh, blah, blah. And he said, uh, he said, people told me you were going to be huge. And, and that was the last conversation. Yeah. So uh, the with the, the last Jack record, The End of the Way, It's Always Been, that was mostly just you and Matthew, right? Uh, yeah. You didn't bring in more players on that album. So was no, that- no, no, no. There were a few excellent players. There were Terry Edwards was on that, the uh, brass player. Do you know Terry Edwards? Yes. Yeah, yeah he was on there. Um, we found our drummer, Paul Cook, who I'm still in love with uh, to this day. Uh, Dan Fante was on it. Right, yeah. Doing vocals. Kirk Lake, you know, there was a lot of uh, guests. Yeah, it's got, again, fantastic songs on it. It's it's maybe the the least accessible of the three uh, Jack records, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, these are all, again, great songs. Um, Like, Sleeping Makes Me Thirsty, I think, again... Despite the silly title, it's just one of the great you title. know all-time great songs. I think it's a great title. Um, I think there were some really good songs on there. Uh, I don't think the vocals were recorded that well. I mean, it was Matthew's first production job. Um, but also, I, I was angry. If I'm honest, I was uh, quite angry that we hadn't been a hit mm-hmm. and um, so I put the vocals over to other people like Kirk Lake Dan Fante mm-hmm. and um, it was like okay we've, you know, if you don't like my singing then like, you know fuck you you know so I mean Disco Cafe Society was a great song yeah that we never ever recorded properly you know, it it should have sounded like the Kinks or like uh, I don't know, like the Fall or something, but we never got that down. And uh, Simon Ramond recorded that. We recorded it. So that was a great pop tune, I thought. And um, so when that came out, at the end of the way, it's always been. Um, did you get a chance to promote it at all? I I don't recall uh, seeing if you did any live shows around that time or um... oh my gosh no no i mean the album's uh, big in france it sold like ten thousand in a week nice uh, yeah and uh, not that i've ever seen any money from it because the crepuscular thieving cunts you know mm. but um 
they put out my poetry book as well. Um, yeah, we toured Europe and did like three gigs in uh, Britain. It was, um, I did like TV in France, loads of radio. Uh, I did one radio show with, um, oh my God, Sasha Distel's piano player. Um, yeah, it was super busy. It was super busy and uh, super great fun because... Um, super great fun. Because I had a group that I loved, finally. I had a great drummer and Fiona was on violin. You know, it, it was brilliant. It was excellent, yeah. But in Britain, I guess, it, it was nowhere near the, the same reception as the first two. Uh, how were the, the gigs, though, um, in the UK? Uh, they were great they were amazing yeah um really you know sold out and um really well received and but at, at that time what what kind of venues were you guys playing um was still like uh you know around about the jazz 600. age levels or yeah okay. yeah it, it didn't get it was about 600 it didn't get any bigger um and the last show we ever did was in Cardiff, the last ever Jack show. I thought we, we would end where we began. And there was like my friends and Matthew's friends were there, nobody else, you know, it was uh, it was sad. But in L London and in Paris and in Brussels and in Madrid and in, uh, you know, it was 600 people just like screaming for Lolita L and uh, filthy names so it was it was wonderful so you, you felt you went out on a high note then at least as far as Jack goes um I wouldn't go that far it was more like we were treading water but um it it was it was odd because I think sometimes there needs to be like um a What's that Woody Allen film where Alan Alda says uh, comedy is tragedy plus time? I know the quote. Crimes and misdemeanors. You know that movie? I haven't. I haven't seen it, but uh, th that's definitely a famous quote. And uh, it was like we we hadn't got that far away uh, from that initial uh, foodful time to be legendary because when I did this show in um, London St. Pancras Church about like two years ago three, mm -hmm. then you know as soon as I came on it was just the house went down you know like went crazy I I was like putting the microphone they were singing the chorus you know so you, you need time but that last Jack tour was Wonderful. I mean, I, I was hospitalized. I remember. Um, my, I remember my in Madrid. My mother had given me um, what I thought were sleeping pills. Mm -hmm. uh, so I st stayed up all night drinking scotch with the guys and uh, doing like tons of uh, great coke. And then we had like an hour before the uh, uh, plane. I thought, I'll just take one of these sleeping pills. I'll have a wonderful one hour sleep. Get up, fresh it. But they weren't, there was some kind of weird, like, um, uh, Percodan or something. 
uh, for her um, arthritis and I was so fucked I couldn't walk so they had to get me a wheelchair for the flight um, yeah so just really great funny times you know? <laughs> <laughs> did you at the time when that last uh, Jack album came out um, did you think you were going to launch a solo career or did you feel like well this is it well um, I'll tell you uh, we did the last Jack show in Cardiff which was great I mean the band I wish you could have seen it Eric I mean the band was so tight we were all like coked up on tequila but was still uh, you know really musical and um, the day after that show because I was staying at my parents in Cardiff and the day after that show I had to travel to Brighton to meet Vashti Bunyan who was recording Just So You Know with Simon Ramond mm-hmm in the Leveler studio. So I felt like that's the end of Jack. This is the beginning of my new, you know, uh, solo writing for other people career. You know, that was great. It didn't really pan out. Um, but There's uh, still time. Well, is, is, yeah, is the, how long, how long have we got left? Any lasting memories of Jack? Any stories that you want to leave us with today? Oh, yeah. Like a many. favorite memory, maybe? It's a weird thing. Um, there's an idea you have about yourself, mm-hmm. and there's an idea the world has about you. So if you're a singer-songwriter, as you know, as you are, mm-hmm. you think, my, I just wrote a song. That's pretty great. And when the world also says to you, yeah, that is great. It's like that's the least crazy you ever feel. Right. So like the first the first time I played Paris or like when I played a great show in London or, um, you know, you feel I had that. I, I had the affirmation where everyone when I was a child who said you're crazy you're an idiot you're ugly you're horrible you're stupid and then some nasty friends (laughs) no but that's my family (laughs) Uh, and then you play to 5,000 people and they respond to your work it's great I'm, I'm lucky I had that absolutely Thanks again for listening to this conversation with singer-songwriter Anthony Reynolds. And as I mentioned in the intro to this episode, we will be doing a part two coming up in the near future where we talk about Anthony's solo records, which are also well worth checking out. So if you're a Jack fan and you haven't dipped your toe into the Anthony Reynolds catalog, be sure and do that. Also, be sure and check out the playlist that I put together to accompany this episode on YouTube. And of course, you can find the link in the description of this show. If you hadn't had a chance, please follow us on Facebook and or Twitter. 
Coming up on the next edition of Hidden in Plain Sight, we've got a special bonus edition of the show where we talk to violinist Audrey Morris, who was in the band Jack when their debut album, Pioneer Soundtracks, was recorded. If you listen to this episode carefully, you might have remembered that Anthony's memory on how she joined the band and why she left was a little bit foggy. So I actually got in touch with Audrey and thought uh, it'd be great to have her clear it up and uh, talk a little bit about the making of the record. So be sure and check that out. That's going to drop here next week. So pretty quickly. And we've got more great guests lined up. But we'll keep that as a surprise. We'll tell you more as we get them recorded. So take care of yourselves and thanks for listening to Hidden in Plain Sight.